Good morning. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Um, wait, I'm on the wrong mic. All right, here we are. Hopefully it sounds better now. It's morning here in Thailand. Hope you're all doing well. Um, a little sluggish this morning. Um, I don't know if it's TMI, but yesterday was a full moon, which means I ejaculated. Uh, I'm only bringing this up because there was a debate in the Masculine Underground group about uh, the ejaculation hangover and how legit it is. And some people are saying, like, when I come, I'm off for six days or 10 days or something. And I'm definitely in the camp that er that leans to the side of, like, those really long supposed ejaculation hangovers, like, meaning, like, you just feel off after you come. I think a lot of it does get um, exaggerated. <clears throat> Even to someone that teaches arousal control and believes in arousal control and semen retention to a point, I do think, you know, if someone is off for a whole week, it's probably largely in their head and their perceptions are causing, maybe actually legitimately causing more hormonal depression, but it's caused by their perception. Whereas um, that being said, uh, I think the day afterwards, it's, it is normal to be a little bit off. So I do feel a little down. I also did a lot of LSD this weekend. So it's probably a mix of both of those things. Um, but I just want to address it because it's something that we were just discussing in the masculine underground group. And then just for the record, um, you know, I've joked about this, but in case you're hearing this out of context, uh, it's not that I necessarily believe you should come on the full moon, just to be clear. So no one goes home thinking, oh yeah, the guy with the arousal control course said you're supposed to come on the full moon. No, I mean, I did come up with that. I, I did uh, first hear about that idea in a Tantra course with this Tantra teacher I spoke, I, I used to study with. Um, he was speaking about sex magic and he said, if you want to use your sexual energy to manifest something, have sex every day with that intention from new moon to full moon and then right after the full moon come. Um, do I actually believe that's a thing? I don't know. I mean, it's not really provable. I, I, there's not really evidence for it. However, for me personally, every 14 days is about the right amount of time to come. Um, this is actually an FAQ. It's not what we're talking about today, but people often ask me how, how often you should come. Uh, Mount Chia has a whole like chart based on age. I think there's more more factors than just your age and how frequent you should come. I think it's something kind of like just with like diet and nutrition and exercise. It's something you can learn some principles, but you kind of got to um, listen to your body and, and look at things yourself. Anyway, not talking about arousal control today. We're talking about cult psychology. Um, a couple, so maybe a month or so ago, I did uh, two epic podcasts on my time in the sex cults uh, when I was younger. Um, there's a lot of tangents I didn't get to go on, and I was focusing more on the story than the actual cult principles. I didn't get to dig into those. So I did want to do an episode today to speak about specific dynamics and I want to speak about it because not other than I think it's interesting that's that's one but also these principles I mean a lot of people view cults as this like mysterious weird thing that exists like in some subculture that you're never going to experience it's not true in the sense of like the principles that make cults work exist are they're not even cult principles they are human group dynamic principles they happen to work in an extreme way in things that we call cults but they exist in families, they exist in teams, they exist in political parties, they exist in fan clubs and in interest groups, in social circles. And a lot, I mean, I do use the word cult liberally. Um, and I, you know, I, I use it kind of uh, as a metaphor for a lot of things or analogously, and some people get upset by that. But I do think these principles run in every, every effective group. So if you're a social human, which, you know, unless you're a sociopath, you do uh, interact with humans and then you are in groups and to some degree. 
it really pays to learn uh, to be aware of these things. Just like in Harry Potter, Harry Potter had to take a whole class on the dark arts, um, not because you want to use the dark arts for, for evil. I mean, the dark arts are even evil. They're just like, they could be used for evil. It could be used in a very negative way. They could also be used in a very positive way. And whether or not you use them as an active party, just to be aware of them, because these principles work in, again, teams, organizations, social circles, advertisers use these a lot. In fact, a lot of what made me make sense of my cult experience, other than, you know, I've read a lot of psychology books. I took many psych classes before I was in a cult. I knew I knew of uh, Cialdini's principles of influence, and we are going to reference them here. But it's, it's in psychology, and even cult experts who are psychologists often speak about cults in a very sterile way, because most of them, if not all of them, have never actually been in a cult. So they, they miss out on the, the actual experience sides. Um, but on the flip side, um, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Maybe it's the ejaculation hangover. I don't know. Um, what was I going to say? Anyway. Oh, oh yeah. I was going to say... Uh, Another place where I relearned these principles was when I started studying internet marketing, and uh, I'm not going to name the names because I don't want to tarnish anyone, but some of the some of the people who I've learned very practical marketing from kind of reference the exact same things. In fact, they half-jokingly say, this is how you start a cult. Just for the record, I'm not trying to start a cult, but, uh, you know, anyway, we're going to jump in. Um, oh, and two announcements. Um, again, uh, Enrollment is open or applications are open for the Camino de Santiago walk in August. I'm going to spend the entire month uh, doing this pilgrimage across northern Spain. It's going to be a coaching adventure for a small group of guys. Uh, obviously, it's not for everyone. If you have a day job, you probably can't do this because we're going to take four weeks to walk by foot and grow and exercise and do men's groups. And I, I expect it to be a transformative experience for myself, and I would love to go with a couple guys. A couple guys have said they're coming. Um, so Booby still have some spots left. To, to join that, you can apply on my website, ruando.com slash coaching dash application, and just write in the notes that you're interested in the Camino. Um, and the other thing, I, I forgot to do this because I'm still bad at marketing. I forgot to do this uh, when I actually spoke about the cult stuff. I'm writing a book. I've been working on this book for a long time. I think it's going to be epic. Um, if you want to be notified about the book, make sure you join my email list, ruando.com. Put in an email. I'm actually going to send out the first chapter of my book to my list soon. Um, so just if you want to hear it, it's read by read by the author, read by me. I'm very excited for the audio version of the book, but I need to finish writing it first. Anyway, all right. Cult psychology tactics, and I want to uh, before we dig into principles and techniques, I do want to start a little high level because I want to be clear of where I'm coming from with all this. I, I do use the word cult liberally, as I said. Some people get upset about it because I don't see cults as a good or bad thing. I think there's plenty of positive cults and a lot of people, a lot of us know about positive cults. It's just uh, for some reason, not for some reason, but probably because of like the Jonestown massacres and like the, the really, really extremely negative cults in the seventies. Uh, our culture views the word cult as this very negative thing. Whereas uh, they weren't, I mean, <clears throat> cults weren't necessarily negative uh, for much of history. Sometimes they were full of weird people, but <clears throat> almost every major, not almost every major religion started as a cult. I mean, if you go way back to when Christianity was new and I, you know, I don't have a negative or positive view of Christianity. I think there's, there's negatives and positives to Christianity, but a lot of, uh, back then when, when Jesus Christ was like a, a kind of new character on the scene, it was referred to as the Christian cult. Like it was a group of people who believed in this thing that other people didn't believe in. 
uh, and they they were literally a cult. Every religion was a cult. Joe Rogan has that joke. Um, what's the difference between a cult and religion? Uh, a cult is a group run by the ideologies of one person who knows his bullshit and he's controlling everybody. And in a religion, that guy's dead. I you know I don't think it's it's always bullshit, but anyway. Uh, so the the main thing and the main reason why again it's important to learn this stuff is that all of these principles are in play in our society. It's uh, very in play in our social media, in advertising, in and a lot of people do this unconsciously. Your employers, your social circles, even your political. I mean, almost every political party, even though they don't like live on a commune or anything, like they run on the same exact principles of uh, cult, cult tactics that we're going to get into. And you can see with like the upcoming election on either side or any side, um, basically the candidate for the political party is the cult leader and all the dynamics are in play. Not to say that politics are bad or you should avoid politics, but it's kind of naive to think that you are uh, not subject to cult dynamics at all. Um, the reason why cults work on an instinctual level, this is my theory, is that they mirror family dynamics. So uh, I spoke about this briefly in, in my cult video, but prior to agriculture, prior to like us having settled civilizations when we were small clans, the way that we evolved to be, uh, most anthropologists would agree. I mean, for more than 10,000 years, we basically lived in small groups of 150 or less people. We traveled around following herds or foraging or whatever. And, um, uh, and like that's just like our way of life. So our our social brains are still wired for that. I mean, obviously, in the last uh, couple thousands of years, our society and human life has changed a lot. But uh, our brains are still wired for a certain way of being. And um, and I, I would even argue that on some level, we're kind of craving that old way of life. I mean, you can even see this in like in nutrition in, in the paleo thing or like natural movement groups or like people who are trying to like get back into that animalistic or like tap into that animalistic way of being. Part of that is also the, the tribal family environment. And in our modern day nuclear families and the way we're organized, it's, it is less, um, less natural to our, our social brains. So when we, uh, so basically what cults do and the reason why cult dynamics work is that they're actually mirroring what we instinctively want from our family life. Um, in this modern day and age, and this is like a, a Noah Harari concept, he spoke about it in Sapiens a lot. Um, modern consumerism has taken people, I mean, agriculture took people away, like one, one notch away from our tribal natural ancestry. Like we started, we stopped living in small groups. We start, we built cities. We started hoarding wealth. Um, we stopped roaming around. We started working 80 hours a week instead of just working a few hours to make enough, to produce enough food to feed our family or feed the tribe. Right. We went into that uh, the industrial revolution, moved us even further away. And um, modern day consumerism has moved us even further away because one of the ideas of consumerism is that if you have money and you can buy things, you don't need people anymore. That's one of the assumptions. That's why in Manhattan, all these people live by themselves in little boxes, which is a very inefficient way on a macro level to be. But um, I mean, obviously, economically, we'd all be better if we shared more resources. But to an extreme, that's communism. I'm not saying anything on that. But that's one of the reasons why these things work. And uh, when we speak about cult cults, like the things that seem to prey on vulnerable people, when you're feeling vulnerable, one of the things that is really, uh, and I spoke about this, I think, last week, like one of the scariest experiences for someone is to be isolated in the reality. And I'll speak about realities in a second. But um, when you're isolated, 
I would argue that you go back to really like your instinctive needs. Like when you're depressed, for instance, it's very hard to think about high level goals or anything. When you're depressed, a lot of what we need initially or when we're sick or when we're physically weak, we do the things that are like more nourishing to our more primal parts of our nervous system, things that make our body feel good, pleasure versus pain, things like that. And I would argue on a social level, when we're feeling isolated, we instinctively crave that family dynamic of that pre-agricultural style of family, where there is not just a mom and a dad and a sibling, there are many people, but it's still small enough group where everyone knows each other intimately. Um, and a lot of these things work on, on that basic idea. So um, a little story this, this weekend, actually the last two weeks, I've been in festival-like environments with my, with my girlfriend, and um, she actually, Grew up in a religious organization that was very cult-like, so we, we joke about cult stuff a lot. And um, uh, and, and my girlfriend's a very like confident, powerful woman. When we were like hanging out at these festivals, like she's like, "Oh, we should do this and do that." And people, especially women, like to follow her. One of the things I appreciate about her. But I remember um, a couple times like she was kind of like kind of organizing people in, in a fun way, like we were making like a cuddle pot or something. I remember like there was this younger woman there who who uh, just said like wow, I would follow that girl anywhere, referring to my girlfriend. Like, I, I would just, I would, she can totally, she actually, she literally said, uh, I don't think even think she was on drugs. I think she literally said, I would let her run my life, right? She was kind of saying it jokingly, but I think she was pointing to this exact principle of like, it, it feels nice to be taken care of. Later on, we asked her about it, or I asked her about it, and she was saying something like, yeah, I don't know what it was. It was just like, I trusted that if I followed you, I would end up where I was supposed to go. This is stuff that she literally said. And I think this very, um, clearly encapsulates um, the whole idea of why cults work is that, I mean, th this is an analogy I use in my book. It's like all of us like to think we want free will, like that we can completely steer the ship of our lives. And, and we can, right, in most situations, many situations we can. But to be in full control of your life is very anxiety producing for most people. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is a plague of the modern man, of the post-millennial guy who like, uh, maybe hasn't actually grown up. He's still in boy mode in his mind. And he's like very afraid. Like you see this all the time. I unfortunately speak to guys all the time, even guys older than me uh, who are like kind of timid about the world and unsure. And I think this is a separate topic, but I think one of the reasons why many men are like this is that we're missing out on rites of passage that have us access our father nature. That's a separate thing. Um, and in, you know, this analogy I use in my book is like, um, we want to think, we want the illusion of free will. We want to think that we have choice, but like to have unlimited choice and to be in full responsibility of the outcome of our lives is so much pressure for, for many people, especially people who are in a more childlike state, which I actually think is most adults in the modern era. So it's, a, it's like a being on a cruise ship. It's like you want to have freedom to do whatever activity you want, but you want to know that the cruise ship is, you don't want to actually steer the whole ship. You, you want to be able to have the illusion of free will and move around about the ship, but you want to trust that this entity is going to bring you to the destination without you having to call those shots because that's, more responsibility than most people want. And actually, you know, just as a side application, like in relationships, if you're a masculine person dating a feminine person, and when it comes to decision-making, or even I would say this comes to leadership and parenting, and this is like per perhaps a, a positive application of tactics. Um, I think it definitely applies to parenting. Like you don't necessarily want to give a child unlimited options of what to do because one, the kid doesn't really know what to do and the kid doesn't even want to make that decision of like how to live my life. A four-year-old is not going to make that choice. But a four -year -old, and no one also wants to be told this is exactly what to do because we want to have some control. So the best thing to do with a child or uh, a, if you're in an intimate relationship and your partner 
in some way wants you to make a decision, kind of the benevolent thing to do is to give them options. It's like you can, you can eat spinach or you can eat broccoli. No matter what, whatever they choose, they're going to get their vitamins, right? Or they're, you know, they're going to eat their vegetable. But like uh, you're giving them choice. That's what most people want, I, I would argue. Um, so that's what a cult does for a lot of people. It's like you can live in this like smaller reality and no matter what, you will end up where you're meaning to go. Uh, and you don't have to, and no matter what you choose, you don't have to worry about you losing the game. We'll ensure that you get where you want to go, but you can make your choices in between. And that was something, um, when I joined my cult, I was very anxious about life and I didn't know, I didn't, I literally didn't know what to do with myself. I knew I didn't want to go back into corporate. I didn't know how to make money. I didn't really know. I was searching for meaning, which I'm going to talk about in a sec. Um, and, and unconsciously when I joined this group, it was like, I can trust that I'm going to grow here. I'm going to end up where I want to be. But I have, it's like they made the world a smaller place. It's like, instead of every option, it's like I have a bunch of things I can do here. And I'm no matter what, like this bubble that I'm living in and experiencing free will in will like slowly end up towards enlightenment or happiness or whatever. Um, so that's one thing I want to speak about the uh, messaging thing. Because like in marketing, they call it a, a bait and switch where you advertise one thing they, they buy it and then they get something else. Usually it's a negative thing. Um, and, but in a, you know, I'll say, I'll just say, I mean, I, I follow, uh, I was following Russell Brunson's stuff for a long time. Uh, the guy who invented ClickFunnels. I think he's got a, some really amazing uh, education on marketing. I recommend his book, Expert Secrets to People All the Time. I used to work for ClickFunnels, but that's not why I'm saying this. I, I legitimately think it's like the best book for, for someone starting their own business to understand internet marketing. But he even speaks about this is like uh, very few people are are willing like when it comes to like the real benefit you want to give people uh, for like a product or a, an idea or a course or anything. Most people are not willing to buy into the big thing. It's like um, we, we usually buy like these like uh, more or more basic or immediate pain points. It's like we don't go to the gym for our confidence. We go to the gym because we want to have a six pack for the summer. But the real meaning is the confidence, right? We, we, have, we even talked about this with the hero's journeys, um, which is like um, in a hero's journey in a, in a film or something, the hero usually wants something uh, more selfish or basic. Like they want money or they want a girl. Or they want to like, get a, a vengeance over something. Like they have a basic desire, but they go through this journey seeking this external goal, which is usually something more superficial. But through the process of this superficial goal, they access something much deeper. They learn how to love themselves. They learn how to be a good person or something deeper. But very few people are willing to spend money to become a good person. Very few people are willing to buy into or spend a lot of money and time to like achieve enlightenment. It's like too abstract, too vague, too unreal. We seek these like immediate uh, material things. This is a thing that advertisers do all the time uh, and cults do. And it's not, I don't even think it's a negative thing. I actually think it's a very positive thing. I'll just reveal my process, even like with the arousal control course. Often I'll, I'll uh, advertise, um, well, at first let me, let me say how this applied in, in my cult experience. Uh, they would advertise uh, basic things like meeting women or achieving, uh, relieving anxiety. Like most people are willing to spend money to, to solve uh, an issue. Like in marketing they call it a pain point. I uh, can't get laid, here's the thing. Uh, you're having a sexual issue, here's the thing. I uh, can't, you know, can't make money, here's, here's a solution. But really what you're delivering is something, if, you, if you're a, a benevolent marketer or a well-meaning marketer, you actually deliver something a little more important that maybe they wouldn't have like bought into at first, but they come in. So for me, like, uh, because the thing is um, no one sticks around for that basic thing. Like you might, you might like show up to an event 
to learn how to make an extra thousand bucks a month, but you're not going to really stay and invest a lot of time for that basic material need. You make that a thousand bucks a month, you're now doing, you know, or whatever amount of money, you're not going to stick around. What you might stick around for is like the really big thing or like the idea that you can produce generational wealth for your children. Like something bigger is what keeps you there, but you need something smaller to get you there. Uh, the bait and switch. So I'll, I'll say, I'll, I mean, I think I do it in a positive way, but like with the arousal control course that I have, I, and I say this all the time, like lasting longer in bed is nice, but that's not, I don't think uh, it's not the end all be all. And like, is it something that really matters? Like, honestly, I mean, obviously you want to last long enough to please your partners or have a good sexual experience. But the, for me, the real benefit of something like arouse control is being able to be grounded, be able to handle your emotions, handle your sensations, access confidence, avoid compulsive behavior. Like these are like high level, really important um, benefits that I believe in. But if I advertise that very few people would be like, yeah, I'm going to like watch a bunch of videos on, on how to, you know, I don't know, whatever I just said, uh, handle my emotions, right? Or be grounded when I'm, when I'm nervous, right? Well, maybe someone who has like a major issue with that would, would invest in that time. But like most people be like, well, I just want to last longer in bed. Like I'll, I'll do that. But no one's going to really stick around for that. So I, I honestly, I do do kind of like, I mean, I hate to use the word bait and switch because it's so negative, but I do do something where I'm like advertising the sexual benefit. But what I think is really the benefit and what, why someone should invest time and, and money into something is like this greater, more abstract benefit. Um, so like with cults, they almost always have to direct you to something way bigger and more meaningful that has to do with something more than your individual needs. So with my cult, with almost every cult, there's something to do with enlightenment, to service to the world. Like almost every cult is like, we have the answer and we're going to spread it to the world. And like the best thing you can do for the earth is to get everyone to believe in this ideology because then we'll all be happy, right? That's something that, uh, almost every cult, almost every religion uh, has as like a basic premise. No one joins the religion to spread the religion, right? They join the religion because they want to fix an ailment, but they stay in the religion because now they believe they're doing something for, for a greater good, more than just themselves. Something that often happens. Um, and, you know, and again, positive application. If you are advertising or leading a group, it's important to recognize this because very few people will stick around just to solve a, a minor problem. Um, uh, okay. Okay, I want to get into a uh, many options here. Okay, I want to get into language creates reality because I speak about this a lot. Um, one way, and this is something that I don't hear a lot of cult people speak about, like one way that, or like speak about an intelligent way, or in a way I think is intelligent. Um, one way that people can shift a reality for someone is, uh, and, and it's, it's important to note, when I say reality, I'm talking about subjective reality, like our subjective perceptions of the world. There's too much going on in the world for all of us to be aware of every single idea and hold it at the same time. Most people don't want to hold conflicting ideas. So we pick one. This is how the world is. Uh, this is what allows people to, to pick their political alliance and like their views on nutrition and whatever. Um, language creates reality is, uh, I mean, all right. So one way that this happens is, uh, like in most fields, uh, there's like jargon, like there's in law, there's legalese. Like if you look at a legal contract, there's weights, like the way they phrase things is, is almost like, why did you phrase it, this simple idea in such a, in a way that you need to have a law degree to understand or in science. I used to have I this chemistry teacher in high school who would always, he would like, he was very, he's a very cantankerous guy, but he was like the whole, the only reason why they use big words in science is to keep other people out. They wanted to like, uh, you know, make sure that the common folk didn't understand 
what we're talking about so that you needed to pay these people who understood what these words mean. Um, this is a common thing. It's also a way that people bind together for an us versus them thing. So uh, you may have, so in, uh, let me give an example. Uh, on a, on a, like an obvious example would be um, in an interest community. I'll, I'll speak for myself. If there's any cult I'm a part of now, it's like the, the kettlebell culture. I've, I've been following Strong First. Uh, I believe in their fitness stuff. I'm a huge fan of Pavel Salsulin. I quote him a lot, and I'm actually preparing for an interview with their, their head instructor, and I was looking at my questions, and I was like, I'm using a lot of jargon because I follow the work. Like, they have terms that most people won't understand out of context, like grease the groove and solidify your gains and stuff like that. And I'm like, I need to make sure I'm not alienating people. The reason why we have terms like that is to, uh, it's like, uh, when, you, when you create a term, I mean, basically any word is meant to uh, summarize an idea. So, like, um, and then, uh, so, but the, what's, what's, what you have to be aware of is that by adding a term to something, sometimes you can falsely make something real. So an example would be, um, I'll get to use fitness or, or nutrition as an example. Um, I was staying with this um, married couple of friends. I was visiting them for a weekend, uh, people I knew back in college. Um, and I, you know, in the next morning, uh, they offered me breakfast. And I was like, oh, no, I don't eat breakfast. And the husband, they're both my friends. The husband was like, what? You don't eat breakfast. Like breakfast is the most important meal of the day. What are you doing? This is so terrible. How could you not eat breakfast? And then the wife was like, oh, wait, that's that thing, uh, intermittent fasting, right? That's what you do, intermittent fasting. Like she just threw out the term. And the husband was like, oh, oh, yeah, intermittent fasting. Like that's a thing, right? It's the same exact thing. Like in practice, same exact thing. Me skipping breakfast and me doing intermittent fasting is exactly the same thing. But once you put a term on it, now it seems real. Whereas a second ago, it seemed ridiculous to him. Now that there's a term for it, oh, like, well, it's, it's got a term, so it must be a real thing. You can make this for anything. You can make up any word. I mean, in, um, in like millennial internet culture, we make up words for things all the time. Or in like kink culture, they make up, they make up a term like, uh, like ghosting. Like, what is ghosting? It means you didn't text someone back after they texted you or you just ignored someone. But you, you add the term ghosting, it gets quicker recognition. It gets this idea that you know something. It makes it seem more real. This is important to know because advertisers do this all the time where they just make up terms and now it seems like a normal thing. Um, like uh, I, the bulletproof coffee thing, you know, putting butter in coffee existed before. If you just said, I'm going to put butter in my coffee, people would be like, wait, what? You're putting butter in your coffee? Like what a ridiculous thing. Maybe you can explain the supposed benefits, but like most people would like roll their eyes until the, the term bulletproof coffee became popular. And, and now you see it on a coffee menu, oh, bulletproof coffee. Very few people question it. It's like, oh, bulletproof coffee, it's a thing. It's literally on a menu. It has a name, but it's the same exact idea. And, and many people don't recognize this. Like when you, when you throw out a term, it doesn't, it doesn't change anything about it. Whether you describe a, um, an experience as a sentence or as a single term doesn't mean anything. But when we make a term, it seems more real and more legitimate. And a lot of subjective reality is simply what you, what you perceive to be normal. Your sense of normal is, uh, is, is what... Uh, is what is what basically what creates your reality and terms is one of the main things. So like, uh, and on a very not in a non cult application would be like internet memes. So a meme, a meme is a unit of culture, right? A meme is anything that gets replicated. Like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, who wrote the Self Machine, uh, who's a zoologist, I'm sure you've heard of Richard Dawkins, um, is the one who coined the term meme as like a, it's like a a gene is a, a piece of our chromosome that happens to repeat and it happens to repeat in uh, in our in our offspring and it goes like a gene that you have has probably been in many of your ancestors going back 
a meme is the same idea, but instead of like something in your chromosome, it's an idea. So like an internet meme is, uh, is usually an image that gets repeated on the internet and it gets slightly modified the way a gene does, but like as an idea. So like you think of like the Philosoraptor, people keep posting that with like different captions. I mean, you know what memes are, right? But memes are also phrases. And this is one of the, if there's, if there's one thing to remember is to, to recognize how phrases are used because um, many people are unconscious with their language use, which, which is okay, but it leaves you vulnerable to, to jumping on someone's reality. So like, um, you'll, you'll notice this is if you, <clears throat> in, a, in a typical social circle, you usually have inside jokes. You might uh, use the same words to describe something um, in, a, in, a, in a culture, like in an ethnic culture or a city culture. If you think East Coast versus West Coast, people on the West Coast say hella, whereas people on the East Coast don't. Like if you hear someone saying like, oh yeah, that, that, that hamburger was hella tasty, like you kind of know where they're from. Uh, you know, hella is is a meme. It's it's a term that people use um, that repeats itself. Why does this matter? Because when you use the same memes as a group, you are now entering on some level. Like you know, using hella doesn't like brainwash you, but it does it does attach you to uh, a subconscious group. You now identify with someone, and on a very small level, if you use the word hella, you are identifying with like West Coast America in terms of culture. Is it a major thing? No, obviously, like, hell is not gonna brainwash you, but it can become a, a major thing when people start using the same phrases to describe an experience. When, uh, you know, when people uh, use the same, um, yeah, use the same phrases. Like, I'll, 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 I mean, because obviously I'm into this cult stuff, I notice this very quickly. Like, if I meet a new group of people and I express an idea using certain words and I see the other people use my words, I'm like, oh, like I'm, these people are now, in some way uh, buying into my reality on a, on a small level. If someone's using my phrases, not that I would do this, but if someone's using my phrases, they'll probably listen to my ideas or, or follow my same perception on something. It's not, like, it's not like just because I say hella, and not that I say hella, but using this example, if I say hella and they say hella, if I use a, uh, I don't know, I can't think of a phrase right now, but if I use a specific phrase and they use it, are they going to like follow me into some ridiculous thing? No, but this is how this is how persuasion works. Like you buy into things slowly, 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 and then after time, I, I mean, I could, you know, this is an example, but like if I was like, oh yeah, the right thing to do is sell all your property and and live in the mountains. It's not that crazy. I mean, if you if you make gradual jumps, if you make the hoops bigger and bigger, someone might completely change their perception of reality without noticing it, and it can start with something as simple as using a meme over and over again, which is why really important to recognize the phrases you use. If you notice that you're using a new kind of joke or a new kind of meme, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. It just means, because like one of the reasons why we do this is to connect with a group. It's important to be parts of groups. It's just important to recognize, am I unconsciously using someone else's language? Because now I'm buying into the reality and the reality might not be a good thing. Could be a good thing. Um, same thing if I use a phrase that someone else uses, I want to be aware, um, I, want, I want to be aware that I might be buying into their way of looking at things. This goes into another thing that uh, is also very important, which is Dunbar's number. Um, you may have heard of Dunbar's number. Dunbar's number is basically um, the number of intimate relationships our brain can hold. So going back to the beginning, um, we're talking about how our brains are still wired for these uh, pre-agricultural tribal clans. Like our, our social brain can only really handle about 150 relationships. That, that's known as Dunbar's number, which is why if you're in a group of 150 or less, it can be very close knit. 
if you once you go past that, it's it's it becomes impossible for our brain to maintain that many of intimate relationships, which is why certain groups like I mean I'm, I might be misquoting this, but I know um, Malcolm Gladwell talked about this in the Tipping Point, I think, where like groups like the Amish, uh, I might not be the Amish, might I might be mixing up something like the Amish might be Mennonites, I don't know. Um, like anytime their 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 town grows beyond 150, they split it up and like they break they make into two towns. Animals do this too. Like once a beehive gets beyond a certain point, uh, they usually split. Um, once um, we we know this in like uh, company cultures, if like a certain division gets too big, it's like hard for them to be cohesive. So usually divisions are best uh, under 150. Why this is important because. If we have this many experiences, whatever the number is, 150 is maybe even less for most people, um, that seems like everything, right? Our brains can't process more relationships than that. So like, for example, with politics, and this, this happened in the 2016 election, someone who lived in, say, a liberal city like, uh, I don't know, say LA or New York or something, uh, probably met way more than 150 people who thought Trump was a ridiculous candidate, right? So they meet all these people, uh, like everyone, everyone they meet, more than 150 people says Trump is a ridiculous candidate. They look on their social media, all their friends say Trump is ridiculous, Trump is ridiculous. So then they grow on to have this perception that everybody thinks Trump is ridiculous. Obviously that wasn't the case, but like, which is why so many people uh, on, on the blue side of the line were so like, sh like shocked and appalled, like how did Trump win? This seems like out of nowhere. It, they only had that perception because even though they maybe logically knew that obviously there were Trump supporters out there, they had almost no interactions. They had way more than 150 interactions on a regular basis that said Trump was ridiculous. So they believed that everyone in the world thought Trump was ridiculous. I talked about this in my cult story um, because of the way like social media works and uh, social media algorithms. Um, and the way I clicked on, you know, I was interacting with my cult people the most. When I logged into Facebook, Every single post was from people about my cult, talking about cult stuff, talking about, it's like, I had, even though, you know, maybe it was only 200 of my Facebook friends talking about that stuff, that's the only 200 thing, uh, people I saw, or it was even less than that, I think, is it like 25 or 50 people is only, is the ones who show up on your, on your Facebook feed. Um, I had this perception that everybody was into my cult. So even though I knew consciously, there's only a, a couple thousand people in the world who were actively in my cults, I had this idea of like, oh, this is new world order. Like this is like, everyone's gonna be into this at, at some point because like, look, just look at Facebook, everybody is into it, right? Maybe not everyone knows yet, but this is clearly a trending topic, right? So when people like have this idea of like, oh, this is like a new trending thing, in this day and age with the internet, we need to be aware that just because you see something over and over again, doesn't mean that everyone's into it. And, and the way that internet advertising works, like you can, people can target you so uh, directly. Like if you are a 30 year old male who's into, um, into kettlebells and you co constantly see kettlebell ads, it might just simply be that a kettlebell co uh, company is targeting you. It doesn't mean that everybody knows what kettlebells are or, or whatever, pick your, pick your product. It doesn't make a difference. Um, and uh, you know, advertisers knew this, this is why that Coca-Cola would have billboards everywhere. It's not that one billboard is gonna make you buy a can of Coke, is that seeing, I mean, in advertising, even pre-internet advertising, they would say like, a customer needs to see seven something seven times before they believe it's the market leader, or they believe it's normal, right? Like, if you think about like why with uh, sporting events, these advertising companies put their logo everywhere, or like uh, this sport, this the scouting report is brought to you by uh, Michelob Light or whatever, like, no one's gonna buy a McLoach from that, but if you see that that logo over and over and over again, you're like, you're subconsciously think, 
oh, this must be the best, or this must be the normal thing that everyone drinks. And then when you go to the store, you're like, okay, I'll have this, I'll, I'll buy this product because it just seems normal. Whereas, I mean, not that I drink soda, but let's say there's a way superior version of, of Coca-Cola. There's like a way superior, uh, uh, you know, let's, let's just say RC Cola was better than all the things. Like objectively, it was the best drink of all time, but you never seen advertising for it. You're not going to pick it over Coca-Cola because it just seems like this weird knockoff, even if it's a higher quality thing. So it's important to recognize if you're seeing something over and over again, it doesn't mean that it's the best or it's normal. You might just be singularly advertised. I have a buddy who, um, I mean, actually, I should say he's an acquaintance who's very, very successful internet marketer. And he was trying to get, I forget the person, but he was trying to get in touch with this very specific um, guy for some business connection. And he wanted to seem bigger than he was. I think he was starting his company at the time. So he found like, okay, this guy's 50 years old. He lives in London. Uh, and then he just like spent a bunch of money sending his own ads to that demographic in London. And then one day he met this, this guy that he it was like some celebrity he wanted to get in touch with. And, and the celebrity guy was like, oh, hey, uh, I know you. I, I, the celebrity guy knew my acquaintance because he had been seeing all these ads. And he was like, oh, well, I, I, he assumed that my acquaintance was also famous because he saw these ads over and over again. But really, he was one of maybe... 500 people seeing these ads like they were just targeted at him which gave him the perception of normal which I don't know what, what this acquaintance of mine did with the celebrity but I'm sure he sold him on whatever he wanted to sell him to just because he was able to throw out the perception of normal that's why it's, it's very important to be aware especially in the internet age especially with social media um, uh, oh and the other thing with this and this is more of a like a direct like a normal like a cult cult type of thing um, the whole us versus them is kind of like the gist of all cult stuff, right? Um, uh, one thing that they would do when I was in the cult was that they slowly would take over your time. So like there's the social media aspect, there's the, um, but there's also like the physical time aspect, whereas they made it really fun to hang out with them. Um, so I would end up spending a lot of time with them, which again, shifted my perception of normal. And I think this is also a positive, this is, this is something that you can really use in a positive application. Um, so there's all the time when a guy is trying to change his life drastically. It can be very hard to change or change his character drastically. It can be very hard to do that if you're constantly hanging out with the same people that knew you when you were small or when you were unconfident or when you're weak. And it's the whole crabs in the barrel thing. Not because the people do this um, in a negative way, but if like your social circle knows you as the quiet, weak, uh, unconfident person, when you start to become confident and like more daring and more outspoken, it'll become uncomfortable to them. So they might not because they're mean or evil, but like just, they just like instinctively, they might like, uh, like tear you down or make biting jokes or make fun of you because like they would have to like, they would have to totally change their interaction with you in order to, um, in order to relate with you, which is why a lot of people, if they have a group of five friends they hang out with, it can be very hard to change their character, improve their character while still hanging out with the smaller minded people. And not to, I mean, I'm just going to say it the way I think it, smaller minded people, um, because like the inertia of the group, that group mentality is a lot stronger than their new individual mentality, which is why, you know, I'll recommend to guys, if you really want to change and you have this group of guys who are, because you know, you're the average of who you hang out with, this group reality is weighing you down. It's not, not that you should cut your friends off or be mean or anything. It's just like you might need to spend some time away from them just to reset your reality and become more grounded in your reality. Another thing, another like hack, if you will, is to go out and find the people who see the world the way you want to see the world, who are learning or growing or interested in the things you want to be interested in because then you can sync up with that group reality. It becomes a lot easier to grow because we almost always revert to our sense of normal. 
Like when I talk about all this reality stuff, I'm, it's, it's like what you perceive to be normal is what you will unconsciously revert to, whether it's making lots of money or making no money or having lots of great relationships or being outspoken or traveling the world. Like whatever you see, think, like whenever you feel is normal is, is like unconsciously what you'll go to. Um, so it's really important to, to note that. And like, you know, this is like the us versus them thing is like the way it's negatively used as a cult will like start to take over your social life it'll give you ideally many positive things. And then you can look back at the old people and be like, Oh, see, like they're, they're living small or they're not living well. And like that creates greater and greater separation. And then you start to think their reality is ridiculous. You see this in politics all the time. Trump supporters talk shit against liberals. Liberals talk shit against conservatives. Uh, they, they're probably not that different of people, but they've created this us versus them reality for the Dunbar's number reason. And all the things I mentioned, um, I want to run through, I don't want to make this, I don't want to cut this video off at an hour. So I'm going to run through the, um, the other Cialdini principles and their applications. So uh, one, of the, one of the principles that Cialdini speaks about that is very commonly used in cults is the like, liking principle or liking principle. Basically, it's kind of an obvious thing. I don't know if it needs a principle name, but in psychology, they gave it a name because it makes it seem more real. Uh, when you like someone, you, you tend to give them the benefit of the doubt and you're more you're more likely to be influenced by them. It's kind of an obvious thing. In sales, the most important thing is that you're liked by the person. Every sales trainer will say something like, people uh, people buy the person before they buy the product. Like, and you can think of times that maybe you've been in sales or you've bought something. Like, If you really like the salesperson, you're more likely to be into the thing. Maybe you'll even buy something you didn't really need because you really liked the person, right? That's obvious. Cults do this to an extreme with a tactic called love bombing, which typically when you enter the group, they give you a lot of love and validation. Like they're like, they, they, they basically fill in all the gaps. And for someone who maybe doesn't get affection and love very often, that can be very, very intoxicating. Um, and then you're willing to listen to the next thing. Um, and especially when it comes to vulnerable communication, almost every, um, every, um, uh, every cults, every every self help group or, or learning group or spirituality will like give you an opportunity for for validation. Um, someone just commented, "This is pretty educational." Thank you. Right. Keep going. Um, uh, liking principle, and you might have heard the New York Times did this article on um, I think it was called "33 Questions to Make Someone Fall in Love with You." Uh, it's a pretty popular article. It's basically just a bunch of uh, questions uh, that. It promote vulnerability. So I forget what the questions were, but they're, they weren't like anything spectacular. It's just like if you go back and forth, honestly answering these very deep uh, vulnerable questions, it's almost impossible for you to not like the person. And this is kind of just a principle of compassion in general. If you actually get to know someone, you'll probably like them because at its root, most of us are, are pretty similar. We all want to be happy. We all want to be a good person, whatever that means to you. We all want to experience certain things. Um, so when you, when you get to see that common ground through vulnerability, you start to like someone, you start to listen to them more, you're willing to do things for them and with them more. Um, so in my cult, like their intro events basically were vulnerable communication events. And um, so it's, I don't want to, I mean, I, I think vulnerability is obviously a very good thing, an important thing. It's important to recognize with whom you're being vulnerable and how you're being vulnerable. Because if you're, because vulnerability feels good, right? Like when you can really open up to someone, it goes going back to the family dynamic. It gives you that sense of security of like when you're open with someone and it's safe to be open. Like they don't they don't like you know like stick their fingers in your wounds or like you know uh, or like use use your secrets against you. Like you could be like, oh, I, I was able to open up and it feels safe. That that gives you this emotional security, which now make creates a little bit of attachment. So if you don't want to be attached to a certain person or group, I'm not saying you should should avoid being vulnerable. I think most people are too invulnerable because they're afraid of that. 
but it's important to recognize who you're being vulnerable with because especially if you go through life avoiding vulnerability I'd say you're more likely of being manipulated by someone who can really inspire you to be vulnerable and you're more more uh, susceptible to being uh, perhaps brainwashed because you're not used to that to that level of vulnerability um, I spoke about this in the cult video I also re referring to the liking principle um, in, in my cult they had this uh, this this tactic or, or skill called hooking which comes from being a hooker like the typically young sexy women would get guys to like them by flirting not even having sex with them like they just flirt they would flirt they would flirt and like make these guys feel really good and really like them and then like and then when the woman was like hey do you want to give me 15 grand so I could take this course a lot of these guys would surprisingly say yes I mean part of the dark arts here and I can't explain how to do this in the video but like they really taught people how to express their sexuality or express their love in a way that felt really good to people but this is another experience of liking principle uh, if you're using it for good if you want people to do what you want to do it's important to be emotionally safe and like make them feel good it may be obvious but also on the flip side of being defensive like if someone's making you feel really good you had to maintain your rationality of like oh this person might I I'm likely to do something I might not normally want to do because I like this person this relates to the next principle, uh, the authority principle, uh, the halo, uh, you know, it's the halo effect. Um, uh, this is one thing that a lot of people don't get when it comes to cult stuff. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, this cult did a ridiculous thing, so everything they must have done was ridiculous. That's almost never the case, uh, because for a cult to be effective, they have to give good stuff. For even, for even like a, a scam marketer to do something effective, they have to give some real value in the beginning, otherwise a person is not going to stick around to listen to their next thing, right? Like the whole bait and switch thing, that bait has to be really legit in terms of like delivering results, and then the person is willing to listen to the next the next thing, whether it's like, oh, you helped me with my love life, maybe you can also help me with my enlightenment, right? Um, uh, so this was like a thing that would happen a lot in the cult. Like in the beginning, you know, I, I, this is right in the beginning of my book, the cult leader gave me like, like she she read me really well in a legitimate way and she gave me really good advice in the beginning which is why I was willing to listen to the next thing um, but just I mean this is I think a lot of people have a hard time with this because every I think naturally we want to think of us versus them it's like if this person it's like if if uh, if obviously Hitler did a bunch of bad things that must mean that he's uh, stupid right people like people who hate Trump do this all the time he's like well Trump does all these like uh, uncompassionate mean things then he must also be an idiot but we know that uh, intelligence and morality have nothing to do with each other they're completely separate things but people very often are like if one thing is negative then everything must be negative like we don't want to admit that an evil person might be a genius or um, a good person might uh, also have like negative traits like that's why you know like Bill Cosby's whole thing was like so jarring to most people it's like wait that's the guy I loved and I loved his television show but he was also a rapist like both of those things can be true. He still might have been, he still might have warmed your heart when you were a child with the Cosby show. Didn't mean that he's also a bad person. They both can exist. Um, this can become dangerous, both the halos effect and the horns effect, which is the opposite thing. When someone gives you good value, it doesn't mean that everything they say is going to be positive. Um, in the cult, this was very often, they, they, they legitimately help people with their love lives, with their sex lives, with their sense of well-being. They help people get over anxiety and, and uh, legitimately develop real confidence which is why people were willing to buy into the more ridiculous things or extreme things. Um, we're go going into the next principle, an emperor, emperor's new, new clothes type of thing. One thing they did in the cult um, was, well, sorry, one of the legitimate things they did in the cult 
was get people in touch with their feelings. Like I never really was in touch with my body until I took their first intro classes. But what also happened in the intro class is they would do these like um, live demonstrations of orgasm where people would like, people in the audience would yell out things they were feeling. And they're usually kind of like over the top things like, I feel electricity up my spine or I feel like tingling all over my body or I feel like, and a lot of it I think was exaggerated and bullshit, but everybody in the, like when everyone else in the audience is yelling like these extreme sensations you're feeling and this, and this group is also giving you legitimate advice. You're like, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe there is something. And you start to like think that, and then you start, because you're actually thinking it, you start to feel it. It becomes like, the story Emperor's New Clothes, where the emperor is naked, but everyone is like, oh, yeah, I see his robe. It's really beautiful. Really, there's nothing there. But like everyone's kind of bought into this idea because they trusted the authority. They trusted the emperor. Or, and, they, and they trusted the authority because the, the person gave them good advice at one point. Something to be aware of. Um, uh, this goes into the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, hierarchy of access, which is the scarcity principle in... Um, in uh, in Chaldini's principles of influence, um, Neil Strauss wrote about this in the in in the game where he wrote about the pickup artist community, uh, where he was saying something like, one of the things that made made that community really attractive is that they had rankings. Uh, it's particularly attractive to men for whatever reason. We like to to rise up in hierarchy because you know hierarchy matters more for masculinity. Um, uh, and Neil Strauss was speaking about how this is one of the things that are attractive about the military and rankings and martial arts where there's belts. Um, in a cult, and I know Scientology did this in an extreme way, my cult did this to, to a degree as well, whereas like uh, there were levels of access and wisdom and abilities that you only got when you put in certain works. Like there was a hierarchy of access, like you couldn't spend time with a cult leader unless you were very deep in and very high ranking, and that, that ranking was developed, that was um, based on, on approval. Um, so, uh, is one of the reasons why people want to stay long. This goes back to the whole bait and switch things. Like you might have went in to just fix your relationship, but then like the next level is like, huh, there's like another promise of enlightenment. And if I just like spend a little more time, spend a little more money, do a little more free labor for these people, then I'll get to the next level and the next level and the next level. And it's important to note because uh, one of the ways that this really was used in um, – in, in, in sales, in a way, uh, it's kind of like, it's, it goes to another Chaldini principle, which is a consistency consistency principle, whereas in the same way that we like to perceive a good thing is all good or a bad thing is all bad, we often want to justify our actions and remain consistent in the limelight, which, which is a thing that people say, like, if you want to stick to your gym goal, publicly announce it to everyone and like you'll be subconsciously, you'll, you'll, you'll have more... Um, motivation to actually stick to it because everyone knows about it. You want to maintain consistent in the public eye. Um, in my cult, they would do this a lot, whereas like uh, someone would maybe be influenced to buy a very expensive program that they're unsure of. Let's say they spent 10 grand on something that is advertised to help them achieve high confidence or you know uh, some sort of spiritual benefit. But like almost everyone, when they spend that kind of money for the first time, they're like, I don't know. I don't know if this is right. Like, you know, I, I'll speak for myself when I spent, you know, I spent 11 grand on this coaching program. I was like, I don't know. Like maybe after a month I'll ask for my money back. I just want to see how it is, which is how I entered it. The, the weird thing is once you actually make that decision, even if you're like doing it in a hesitant way, I just want to see how it is. When other people, like when my friends would hear like, oh, you spent 11 grand on this. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? And I would have to justify to them why I would I would basically repeat what the salesperson said to me just so that they didn't think I was an idiot. But by saying it, by arguing for this point, I removed my ambivalence about it, and I now I, I now 
in my mind was I was confident about my decision because I had to justify it to the world to maintain consistency. Like if you spend a bunch of money about something you're unsure of, that, that doesn't really that doesn't really fit the public image most of us want to have. We want to like remain consistent with our decisions. So in order to justify my purchase, I now have to be confident about my purchase, even though I did it initially just as a trial run, which is how free trials often work when it comes to expensive items. Uh, we, we do this trial thing. We have to justify why we spent the money. So we had to start to like the thing that we maybe wouldn't even have liked. And then we actually love it. And then whatever. I mean, you know how it works when you put in your credit card information for something free. Obviously, some people cancel, but a lot of people will stick with something, even if they weren't even planning on sticking with it, just because they want to justify their purchase by doing the thing. And then eventually they like it. Um, yeah. Okay. We only have a few minutes left. So I'm going to just run through these last two ideas. These are not Cialdini principles. These are my things because... Unlike most cults spoken about, mine was a matriarchal cult. Um, one thing is called bottoming, and I, I've made other videos on this. When people think about power dynamics, they usually view it from a masculine lens. They think of topping, like I'm making someone do this, I'm dominating someone. But one is it's not very effective because when you top someone, unless they're already bought into reality and, and they already trust you, even if you make some power play on someone, most people are gonna be like, like fuck this guy. Even if you get someone to go along with what you want, a lot of times people are going to be like, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll harbor some sort of resentment if you somehow got them to do a thing and it's like overtly like you got them to do a thing they didn't want to do. Anyone's going to be like that, even if they go along with it. Like if you make, yeah, if they made a power play on you, if they like dangle something in front of your face or they threatened you and you do it, you're not going to really buy into it. And it's going to be harder for them to influence you to do the next thing because now you feel resentful about it, right? It's often how topping works. Um, bottoming though is a more effective thing because bottoming is like the feminine style um, influence where instead of making someone do something, you create the conditions that make it feel really good for, the, for them to do it. So like this is the whole hooking thing that I was talking about. Like with these women, I had this friend who, who got a lot of money out of these, these guys. It's like she wouldn't like try to convince a guy to give her money. She wouldn't like use rational explanation. She wouldn't like try to make power plays because that wouldn't have worked, right? but she would make it feel really good where it was like, it became very clear that if they did this thing, she would feel really happy and she would make him feel even more happy. So these guys would be like, I, I mean, I, I hear verbatim, like a guy would be like, you know, I don't know, I know I said I didn't want to do this, but I think I kind of want to do it now. I'm doing it for my own volition. Uh, bottoming influence is when someone creates the conditions for you to do a thing on your own. It's similar, similar types of type of influence where like they're, you're still still doing what you want to do without it. And I think this is, um, you know, there's a positive application, I think, with, with children, with uh, if you're like um, a peer leader, if you're leading a group where like you don't have a clear rank or anything, but it's important that you're leading a group, you want to create the conditions where people can choose to do something of their own volition. The, the defensive side of this is if you are now choosing to do something that you didn't originally want to do and it legitimately feels good, it's always good to take a step back and be like, am I doing this because this person, is this actually my best? With all of this influence stuff, it's important to like just take a step back with everything and notice like, huh, if my, my feelings have changed about this, let me just like take a second to think, did someone manipulate the conditions of the situation to make me feel good about this? Whereas like, it's not actually going to make me feel good about this later. A lot of people, a lot of salespeople do this where like, you don't, you don't, you don't make a hard close. You do something like, yeah, I mean, wouldn't it feel nice if you did, you know, like you have to be aware of this type of stuff um, because in today's day and age, with all the information we all have, 
Um, very often like topping and heavy sales tactics don't work. Like most people like are aware and averse to that because it's very explicit, but a lot of like everything from like positive marketing or influence or like positive idea spreading, spreading to like some of the more sleazy marketing tactics that uh, uh, exist. You want to be aware of, um, bottoming. It becomes a, a weird ethical question because if someone, if you make someone feel good about doing something and they're legitimately doing the thing and they feel good about it, is that a negative thing? I mean, I guess it depends on the result for them, obviously, right? But like my cult that got people to do a lot of things for their own volition, they, they would choose to do it on their own, but it was really something not in their best interest. So it becomes a, a question that's bigger than we can fit uh, now. Um, I guess this last idea isn't a tactic, it's just a general idea, and perhaps to wrap this up now. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to oratory and like debate and influencing someone, and this goes back to like ancient Greek oratory. There are three types of uh, persuasion. There's logos, which is the logical uh, thing that most most of us are aware of and can think of. And when we think of arguments and debates, people are almost always completely speaking from logos. Most men only think in logos. Um, many relationship issues are are coming from the masculine person, like being like logos, 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 and they're ignoring the other two things. The other one being another one being pathos, which is the emotional influence for something. So when you see like um, conservative versus liberal debates and like someone like Ben Shapiro says, facts don't care about your feelings, he's saying a logos argument, right? But the other side of the, the other person doesn't care. If they, you know, a lot of the people arguing against someone like Ben Shapiro are, are viewing things from the opposite end of like feelings don't care about the facts. It's not to say one is better than the other. I mean, I think most of us, since we're so rationally minded as a society would be like, oh, like logos is the most important thing when it comes to the real world and material reality, logos is the most important thing. Like it's based on logic and what's what's concrete. But when it comes to influencing someone, pathos is just as influential, which is why a lot of us, even though we think we're logical, we're moved by anecdotal evidence. We're like, oh yeah, maybe 90% of things happen this way. But I know this one person, like I know this one person that uh, that had this experience and this is why I believe this this way, right? Like. Um, when it comes to almost every argument, even like things like nutrition, people are like, well, when I, when I switched to vegan, like my skin turned better. Like, okay, there's many reasons why that might happen, but that the more, the more, the important thing is like that person believes in that reality because of a completely emotional argument. And they later on use logos to justify it. I mean, I, I use nutrition because like, I think it's the most ridiculous that both sides, let's say vegan versus paleo, they're both using science on their side, but they're really emotionally driven discussions almost all the time. The third part, um, the third type of influence is, is ethos, which is character. And this, this goes back to other things we've spoken about, the liking principle, authority principle, consistency principle, places where you, you believe in something, the halo effect, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're viewing someone's character as the reason why you're, you're believing in someone. Um, I didn't talk about this because maybe it's more one of the more obvious things, but for a, a cult cult to work, there has to be an influential figure in marketing. They talk, they call it the attractive character. Like there has to be, you know, uh, yeah, there has to be someone that people resonate with and identify with. And if someone identifies with that person, they're almost willing to, to, to forgive a weak logical argument or a weak emotional argument. I mean, ethos and, and emotions are, are very driven, are very connected. Um, going back to my final point, the whole family dynamic thing, uh, people want to surrender to someone who they believe is gonna steer their ship well. Uh, this goes back to old parenting dynamics. Um, this goes back, I mean, you can see this in BDSM, why many people like to surrender. 
everybody wants a daddy, you know, like very few people want to be in charge of everything. And if you can demonstrate positive character, they're willing to listen to you. My final, final thought is all of this stuff, the dark arts I'm sharing with you for three reasons. One, I think it's interesting. Two, uh, it's important to be aware of a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's more stuff than I can get into, but I figured this one page would fit in an hour and it did. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you want, you want to be defensive and be aware of like, especially in the social media age and internet, we're all on our phones. We're basically putting ourselves in a state where people can brainwash us through social media and advertising, going back to the Dunbar's number th stuff and all that. It's important to be aware of like when you start to feel influenced, like, is this actually coming from me or is this someone playing with my emotions or playing with my sense of reality? And the third piece being, if you are a leader, if you are a parent, if you are in a relationship, if you are in charge of some sort of group, uh, I hope you have benevolent intentions. You're not trying to fuck people over. Uh, hopefully you want to lead people to positive things. However, um, these principles still work on the positive end. Like just because they can be used for evil doesn't mean that they are in themselves evil. These are just like, People are susceptible to these things because we instinctively want to be part of a, a tribal environment because that's how we feel emotionally safest. If you are a leader of a group or head of a family or something, it's important to be aware of this stuff when you're hopefully trying to steer your group towards a positive outcome. Um, if you're wondering why your kids don't listen to you or your, your partner is ignoring you or your team doesn't respect you, it might be because you are failing to exercise these, these principles of group dynamics. Um, for anyone who's listening to the recording uh, in the future, if you have questions, well, one, if you want to catch these Facebook lives, you should join the Facebook group Masculine Underground on Facebook, or you can go to forum.masculineunderground.com. That's forum.masculineunderground.com. It forwards to the group. You can be part of these. And then you can comment if there's any uh, cult stuff, psychological tactics you want me to go into more detail on or any other principles, there are obviously more principles of persuasion than what I fit into this video, but if you want me to speak on them on a later date, not next week, but at some point, um, I'm happy to do that. So feel free to comment on the recording of this and I will flush things out, either, either by text, either in a comment or if it's worthy of another video, I'll make a video. Um, thank you for watching everybody. Uh, join the Masculine Underground Facebook group. Um, if you wanna catch the first chapter of my book, Make sure you're on my email list. You can go to ruwando.com. Yeah, just ruwando.com. Punch in your email. You get access to my archives of footage of other old interviews. And um, I will send out the first chapter of my book in the new future. I might even put it in like an autoresponder. So if you're listening to this recording far off into the future, you can join my email list and you will get um, an email with that chapter. Um, my book's coming out eventually. I'm taking my time with it because uh, I've already spent a long time and I was like, I might as well write the book I really want to write, which is a little more deep than just telling a sex cult story, um, telling stories about reality. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you next week. Uh, next week's topic, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to be talking about hormones and status and influence. I have a couple of topics. That's probably what I'm going to talk about. That's a not binding thing. All right, see you later. Peace.